Coming up next, please join us for Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 144. Shalom, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. With my previous episode 143 and part 29, we looked still deeper into the order of Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, from Psalm 110, verse 4, which is based on Genesis 14, 18. This one is referred to as Melchizedek, who was known to Avram or Avraham as Sadok, heaven's eternal priest and king from the city of Shalem. Another name for Shalem was also known as the kingdom of heaven. With this episode 144 and part 30 in the last Passover week chronology of Yeshua, I am going to bring to a close my series on the Sadokim or the Zadokites and how Yeshua the Messiah not only shapes the ancient story, but also how he fashioned his own ministry outreach precisely according to their teachings and their calendar timetable. Recall, it was Yeshua who said in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, and I believe that is referring to the sons of the house of Tzedok, amongst all the other prophets that came before them. So again, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children or sons together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house, and I think this is opposed to the house of Sadok, so your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yehovah, or in Hebrew, Baruch Shem Yehovah. In the days leading up to the coming of Yeshua, anything having to do with the authority of the Messianic house of the sons of Tzadok and their doctrines it was all vigorously rejected by the Jerusalem status quo, explaining why there was so much repetitive conflict going on between the Judeans and their national festival lunar calendar and that of the Sadokim or the Zadokites and their priestly festival solar calendar. In the days of Yeshua, there were three primary sects of Judaism, at least according to Jewish historian Josephus. One, the sect of the Jerusalem Sadducees, which was quite different from the priestly Tzedokim of Damascus, later referred to as Qumran. The second, the sect of the Judean Pharisees, also called the Hasidim in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Third, the sect of the Judean Essenes. But as far as we know, this sect was not directly associated with the Netzarim believers in Yeshua, who referred to themselves as the Way in the Dead Sea Scrolls of Qumran. Among these Jewish groups of the Judeans, the Hasidim, also again called the Pharisees, are the most discussed in the gospel narratives. They saw themselves as the teachers of all Israel, 
they saw their role as that of freeing the nation from any outside authority of a caste of priests who claimed to have the true authority to teach the people the proper interpretation of the biblical texts and further to show the nation when to observe all the festivals of Jehovah. However, a large group of believers in Yeshua, the Messiah, came to recognize that the sect of the Pharisees were in fact illegitimate because their not-so-distant ancestors had instigated a religious coup d'etat against the biblical authority of the priestly house of the sons of Tzadok. Essentially, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these religious groups in Jerusalem, Yeshua considered them sons of usurpers. And many among the people of the land, that is, the Amharits, they also recognized the same problem. Hence, we learn this from Matthew 7, 28-29. It was when Yeshua had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Consequently, the religious teachers in Yeshua's day wanted nothing to do with Yeshua nor with his disciples, because doing so meant agreeing with the defined repentance that Yeshua and his followers were promoting. Essentially, they were advocating a national return to the authority of the king and priest Melchizedek of Shalem, again, the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Yeshua began to publicly support, considering that all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him. This is what it says in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Yeshua began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, or the kingdom of Shalem, if I understand the text correctly. When the national leadership rejected Yeshua as the promised coming one, referred to as Melchizedek or Melchizedek, that is, the tzaddik of the kingdom of Shalem or the kingdom of heaven, Yeshua responded by speaking these words in Luke 19, 43 through 44. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Well, we'd have to ask why. Yeshua answers by saying, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Sometime between 175 before the Common Era, we refer to this as BCE, and the year 70, referred to as the Common Era, the religious leaders and elders of Judaism considered themselves free to reconfigure the playing field, so to speak, that is, to use their religious authority to enact new rules. Thus, they did several naughty things. Number one, they canonized the sacred books of Hebrew Scripture so that there could be no further interference from the Damascus-slash-Qumran priests of the house of Tzadok. In other words, no more introductory texts being added as prophetic interpretations of what was to come. 
Number two, they cast off the priestly library of the scrolls that they hid in the caves of Qumran, including the books of Enoch and Jubilees, calling them heresy. In this, they relegated them to the rubbish or trash heap of history. Number three, they changed the definition of the start and end of a day from dawn to dawn and made the day start and end with a sunset-to-sunset paradigm. Number four, they made modifications to the eternal doctrines of grace and salvation and replaced them with the idea of zechut, which is translated as earned merit through the observance of mitzvot, or good actions. They also made many other changes in the understanding of the last day great resurrection and entrance into the olam haba, that is, eternal life and the world to come. Five, they distorted the words of the prophetic utterances of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both who were Zadokite priests in the bloodline of Aaron passed down to Eleazar. Number six, they rejected any notion of walking by and in the Holy Spirit of Jehovah. And by the way, that is a tried and true Zadokite paradigm. And they replaced that idea with an interpretation coming from Exodus 23.2, which is called in Hebrew, Achare Rabim Lehatot, that is, incline after the majority. And number seven, they established Jehovah's festival solar calendar and changed it to a sighted moon lunar calendar, which came into use under the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV. These and many other additions, subtractions, modifications, and yes, even legal enactments came to be binding customs and laws on the nation. So when Yeshua came, he had a lot to say about all of this. And in this series, really, I've only scratched the surface as to what happened in that time frame of Yeshua and later Shaul or Paul. Now, as I'm wrapping up this rather long-winded series, I would like to focus our attention on a summary of the chronology of the last Passover week of Yeshua. In this study, we will address the following questions. 1. How did Yeshua manage to do the Passover and eat the Passover with his disciples precisely according to Exodus chapter 12? The second question, how did Yeshua come to be called the Passover lamb, if in fact he was around to do the Passover and eat the Passover with his disciples? And the third question, what does it mean that Yeshua, the Passover lamb, died for the sins of the world? Episodes 1 through 22 in this long series lays out in granular detail a textual analysis of the gospel narratives, showing that there were two primary religious festival calendars operating non-synchronous, meaning they were operating with two different timelines, the Judean calendar and the Zadokite calendar, and there was a two-day difference between them. After carefully analyzing all the timelines, I came to the following conclusions. Number one, there were two Passover preparation days, 
one for the Zadokites on a Tuesday afternoon, the third day of the week, and one for the Judeans on a Thursday or fifth day of the week afternoon. Number two, there were two interrogations before Pontius Pilatus or Pilate. The first one early Wednesday morning, the fourth day of the week, and one early Thursday morning, the fifth day of the week. The third conclusion that I made, there was one Passover observance according to the Zadokite calendar on Tuesday, the third day of the week, referred to in the calendar as Aviv or Nisan 14. And there was one Passover observance according to the Judean calendar on Thursday, the fifth day of the week, referred to as Aviv or Nisan 14. So you can see there are two Aviv or Nisan 14s in that last Passover week of Yeshua. Number four, the legal Sanhedrin trial of Yeshua occurred on Aviv or Nisan 15, that is, the first day of unleavened bread, but only on the Tzadok calendar, compared to his trial occurring on Aviv or Nisan 13 on the Judean calendar. The fifth point, the crucifixion of Yeshua was according to the Zadok calendar, in which his crucifixion occurred on Thursday, the fifth day of the week, which was the 16th of Aviv, or if you wish, Nisan. But according to the Judean calendar, his crucifixion was not on the 16th, but it was on the 14th of Aviv. The sixth point, Yeshua's third day resurrection occurred late on the Sabbath, but this was according to the Zadokite Sabbath on Aviv 18. And I think between the hours of 2200 and 0200 hours, that is under the cover of a late night darkness, but compared to the Judean calendar, his resurrection would have happened on the 17th of Aviv or Nisan. Why? Because by Judean reckoning, a new day always begins with sundown. So therefore, according to Judean reckoning, sundown on that sixth day of the week, or Friday as we would say, that began the 17th of Aviv, rather than on the Zadokite Sabbath, where the 17th of Aviv began with that morning sunrise on that sixth day of the week. And finally, my seventh conclusion, the appearance of Yeshua to the women who came to the tomb was early on what we would call Sunday morning, the 19th of Aviv on the Zadokite calendar. But on the Judean calendar, his appearance to the women would have been on the 17th of Aviv. So again, you can see this two-day non-synchronous timeline going on between the two different calendars of that last Passover week. Now, the calendar of the priestly Tzedokim, or the Zadokites, was a festival schedule based on movements of the sun, according to a calculated sevens timeline. That is, they understood a year as 364 days, a year of 52 weeks, a year of four 91-day quarters, a year of four three-month cycles calculated as 30 days, 30 days, and 30 days, and a year of four one-day seasonal transitions at month numbers three, 
6, 9, and 12, thus making those four months out of the year 31 days in length and not 30. The Zadokite day was a dawn-to-dawn schedule and always advanced to the next day, beginning and ending with the break of day or what we call dawn. This would be the Hebrew word shachar. And you can see that in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. Now compare this to the calendar of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This was an alternating schedule, rather complicated, of 29 days and 30 days, and then an intercalated 13th month that was added every few years to account for the timing differences between the movements of the sun and the moon. Their calendar was based on the sighting of the moon by two witnesses in front of the Sanhedrin. The Judean day was a sunset-to-sunset schedule and always advanced to the next day, beginning with sunset and then ending the day with sunset when three stars appeared in the night sky. Now, furthermore, I also explained in this series that in Yeshua's time, there were actually four cultural calendars of the day, each opposing the other, meaning they were not in synchronicity. The four cultural calendars of the time, they were the calendar of the priestly Zadokites or Tzedokim, the calendar of the Judean Pharisees and Sadducees, the calendar of the Romans, and the calendar of the Greeks. Imagine living in that time with four different calendars, all kind of working non-synchronous with each other. Understanding time depended on the group that you associated with. Now, from episodes 23 through 29 in this series that I've been doing, I laid out in a lot of granular detail an analysis that shaped the historical years 175 before the Common Era to about 140 of the Common Era. Within the generation between the years 175 to about 140, there was a growing religious and political movement to clean out the old government previously controlled under the authority of the priestly Zadokites in order to bring on a new way of doing things. Now, keep in mind that long before the ancient system of government that Jehovah established, it placed Aaron, the brother of Moses, at the head of all teaching and legal authority in all Israel. His power was then supposed to be passed down line through his four sons. However, among Aaron's four sons, two died due to their rebellion against Jehovah in the beginning days of David's son Solomon, the descendants of Ithamar, the younger brother to Eleazar, those descendants were perpetually disqualified from carrying the mantle of their father's authority. Aaron's eldest and firstborn son, Eleazar, he and his descendants ultimately received Jehovah's approval for a priesthood and thus qualified them to continue the ironic function of national teaching and judging authority over all Israel. This came to be called the Aaronic Priesthood. And it's at this point I need to take a quick break, but I will return, Yah willing, and we'll continue where I've left off here. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the second half of Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 144. Here is your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. Welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Let's continue where I left off, essentially giving you a summary analysis of the episodes 23 through 29 in this long series that I've been doing on the Zadokites or the Tzedokim of the Qumran. But this all changed under the emerging powers of the Maccabees or the Hashmonaim, which occurred about a century and a half before the arrival of Yeshua. It started with the Maccabees and the five sons of one Matityahu. They rose up to fight against the invading Hellenists of the day from the Greek Seleucid Empire. In short, the Hashmonaim or the Maccabean Wars were concentrated on fighting against the Hellenizing of the Judeans, and yes, even fighting against many of their own brethren who preferred to live as Hellenized Jews or Greek Jews. Actually, some of this comes to the surface of our understanding through a statement that the Judeans made against Yeshua, as it's recorded for us in John 7, 33-35. Yeshua said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Judeans said among themselves, well, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion or the diaspora among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? This is referring to the Greek or Hellenized Jews. History records that the five sons of Matityahu and their supporters led a decades-long, robust guerrilla warfare against the oppressive government edicts of the Greek Antiochus Epiphanes IV and his successors as he set his sights on gaining ruling power over all of the Levant, also called Palestine in those days. It is all recorded for us in the four books of the Maccabees, as well as in the work of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. Leaving behind those early days of the Maccabees, history records the rising of the Hashmonaim or the Hasmonean dynasty, sprouting out from the youngest of the five surviving sons of the Maccabees. His name was Shimon. In his days, he formed a fresh government that challenged the whole gamut of national, political, military, and religious power originally put into place for all Israel by Yehovah. Historically, we know a lot about the politics and religion of the two houses, Israel and Judah, and what happened in the split between them and what will happen in their end-of-days regathering. However, we still need to comprehend a non-physical awareness of the two houses, Israel and Judah. In other words, that they still remain as a unity, Israel and Judah, but on a spiritual level. The notion of a national people as a larger body of all Israel is much greater than just a pure hereditary family bloodline. And in this 30-part series that I've presented on the last Passover week of Yeshua and the chronology of that last week, I tried to show that Yehovah defines His work among all Israel as a national unity ruled by a king and a priest of heaven by way of a divine decree, written about in Psalm 110, verse 4. Yehovah has sworn and will not be comforted, which I understand the Hebrew to be saying, 
that he won't be comforted with any other plan or any other purpose or action. You are a Cohen or a priest forever, according to the word of Melchizedek, that is, through a command of Melchizedek, not a religious order, as most people might understand the concept. In other words, Psalm 110 verse 4 is not about a religious order or comparison group. It's about a word or a command, because the Hebrew word dibra is in there, and that was a legal and spiritual term, which you can understand that from the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 14. Now, in this teaching series, I spoke a lot about the king and high priest Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, known from Genesis 14.18. He is known as my King Sadok, or simply King Sadok, the king of righteousness. Through his eternal established authority, by the order or command of the word of Jehovah. Melchizedek is called the teacher and the instructor. And we can see this from the words of Yeshua in Matthew 23, 8 through 12. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Messiah, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father he who is in heaven, and do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Messiah, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Qumran priests prophetically understood this long before the arrival of Yeshua, when they referred to themselves in Hebrew as the Yachad, that is, the unified and redeemed whole house of Israel under the authority of Melchizedek from Genesis 14.18, who was the king and priest of heaven's kingdom of Shalem, the possessor of all authority, in heaven and on earth. This kingship and priesthood of Melchizedek is written on tablets of heaven, explained through the prophetic writings of the priestly Zadokites or Sadokim of Qumran, one of whom was the prophet Ezekiel. He wrote the following in chapter 40, verse 46, and chapter 44, verses 15 through 16. First, Ezekiel 40, verse 46. The chamber which faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Tzadok, from the sons of Levi, who come near to Jehovah to minister to him. And again, in Ezekiel 44, 15 through 16. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Tzadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says Adonai Yehovah. They shall enter my sanctuary and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep or safeguard my charge. Now, this explains the words of Yeshua, who said to the unlawful authorities of his day among the Judean body of illegitimate judges and rulers in John 8, 23-25, you are from beneath, implying illegitimate priests and rulers. I am from above, implying from the direct command and order of Melchizedek 
the king and ruler of the house of Tzedok. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Yeshua said to them, Just what I've been saying to you from the beginning, or from Breshit. Their statement, Who are you? comes across as if to say, Who do you think you are? As though you have a greater authority than we do. His words must have sounded totally outrageous when he spoke twice about dying in your sins. But I think that what they heard would have brought to mind the words of Ezekiel, the priestly Zadokite, as it's written in Ezekiel 3, 20 through 21. And again, my understanding of this passage is coming from reading the Hebrew text. Quote, But to turn a Sadok from his election in Sadok and to make him illegitimate, he has also given me offense. He shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin. And his ranking in the place of Tzedok will not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. This is essentially saying if you put a stumbling block in front of someone who is a Tzedok and causes them to abandon their inheritance as a Tzedok, then you have caused yourselves to fall under divine judgment. That's kind of what I'm getting out of that passage. Now, genetically, we know that Yeshua's authority was embedded into his soul's very essence, anointed for the role of Melchizedek in heaven and on earth by Yohanan the Immerser, or John the Baptist, in the River Jordan. Yeshua's anointing as Messiah King and the teaching priest Melchizedek, that was an entitlement given to him at the command of the word of Melchizedek, the unique son of the Ancient of Days in heaven. Therefore, it was the Spirit of Jehovah through the pre-incarnate Yeshua who said to the Zadokite priest Ezekiel, 44, 23 through 24, And they shall teach my people between the Kadosh, or holy, and the unholy, and cause them to understand between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my modim, that is, in all my appointed times, and they shall set apart my Sabbaths. The Sabbaths, I believe, are referring to those linked to the appointed times or the Moedim. This role of the Zadokites was to fulfill the words of Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy set-apart nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Given that Yeshua functioned in heaven and on earth through the Ruach or spirit of Melchizedek or Melchizedek, to me it makes perfect sense that he himself was and remains a king and priest forever, according to Psalm 110 verse 4. The followers and supporters of Yeshua learned that it was he, that is, the word or command of Melchizedek, who actually spoke through Yeshua, which is why they called him the teacher and 
the righteous one, or if you will, the just one. You can see that in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Yeshua, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the Just One. In Hebrew, that would be Hatzadok, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. This was and is the word of Yeshua's disciples addressing the question of authority over all Israel. Take a look at 1 John 1, 1-3. That which was from Breshit, or Genesis, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. Yeshua lived, taught, died, and, yes, resurrected, according to the Torah or the teaching of the king and high priest Tzadok, that is, Melchizedek or Melchizedek, which is why there is so much conflict written about between Yeshua and the religious leaders of his day. Why? Because they were illegitimate judges and teachers, and they had no entitlements from Jehovah to do what they were saying and doing. Here is John 7, 14-19 to explain this. Now about the middle of the feast, Yeshua went up into the temple and taught, and the Judeans marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Yeshua answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the Torah? And yet none of you guards the Torah. Why do you seek to kill me? What's all this about? What is it all supposed to mean? Well, it appears to me that what Yeshua is saying is that there is a marked difference in doctrine between the sons of the house of Tzedek under the authority of heaven's Melchizedek and the sons of those who are not of the house of Tzedek, but actually consider themselves possessing an authority, albeit an illegitimate authority. These are the ones that Yeshua is referring to as having unrighteousness, that is, no tzedok in them, no link to the king and priest tzedok of heaven and earth from the kingdom of Shalem above. So this brings me to answer the questions that I presented at the beginning of this study. The first question. How did Yeshua manage to do the Passover and eat the Passover with his disciples precisely according to Exodus chapter 12? Recall that there were two concurrent 
but non-synchronous calendars functioning in the days of Yeshua. Since Yeshua was living and teaching according to the calendar of Melchizedek and the house of the sons of Zadok, therefore he observed the law of the Passover precisely according to Exodus chapter 12. This means that he and his disciples actually participated in slaughtering and roasting a Passover lamb on the third day of the week, or what we call Tuesday, which happened to be the 14th of the first Chodesh, or first month of the new year. That is a V14. This is why Yeshua's disciples said to him in Luke 22, 7 through 9, Then came the day of the unleavened breads. No, not then came the day of the festival of unleavened bread. That is an interpretation given to us through the translation teams. It's biased. This is the day of the unleavened breads as it appears in the Greek text. That is, when the Passover must be slaughtered. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us. That's the lamb slaughter that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? However, on the national Judean calendar of that week, the last Passover week of Yeshua, the Passover ceremony was to begin on the fifth day of the week, or what we would call a Thursday, which was the 14th of Aviv, or as they would say, the 14th of Nisan, on their calendar. This is precisely why it is written in John 19.14, quote, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, that is of the Passover lamb slaughter, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Judeans, Behold your king. So now you can understand how it is that Yeshua managed to do or participate in a legal Passover and also eat the Passover lamb exactly according to the written words of Exodus chapter 12. The second question that now needs to be answered, how did Yeshua come to be called the Passover lamb? The answer is because he was the Passover lamb. The problem often made is that most people are looking for Yeshua's crucifixion as a slaughtered Passover lamb on the wrong 14th day of the first Chodesh or first month. In other words, there's two Aviv 14s in that last Passover week of Yeshua. So we have to ask, on which one was he crucified? So in order to fulfill the type and shadow of the Passover lamb correctly, we must look for the crucifixion event specifically during the week of Passover and unleavened bread. In other words, look for the event during that whole eight-day period. That is important. Recall the term Passover, as it's used in the Brihadashah, the New Testament, it applies to the whole eight-day period of what is called unleavened bread. This is what the gospel writer Luke tells us in Luke 22.1. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, hence Yeshua is the Passover lamb because he was crucified during that week. According to Josephus Antiquities, book 18, paragraph 3, Passover was also understood in the same exact way. And even in our own time, 
The same is also true that Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread are collectively referred to as two events linked or connected into one overarching event. So now this brings me to the third question that I need to ask. What does it mean that Yeshua, the Passover lamb, died for the sins of the world? The true biblical calendar of the Hebrew Torah should be a teaching from the Melchizedek house of the sons of Tzadok, because this house was appointed by Yehovah to be his legitimate teaching priests, prophets, and judges on earth. Any other religious upstarts introducing any competing doctrines were all considered deviants and usurpers with their own ideas and were not teachers of what is termed sound doctrine. It was understood that if a teaching is not of sound doctrine, as it appears in the texts of the Brihadashah, the New Covenant, then that teaching simply must be derived from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, as it's written about in Genesis 2.9, Genesis 2.17, and Genesis 3.6, because the life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua was understood as a type and shadow of an innocent lamb who died for the sins of the world. And that inference is plainly implied that he was the fulfillment of the suffering servant prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. This means that when Yeshua was crucified, that one event had the power to cancel the cursed relationship that is written about in Genesis 3.22. And I'm going to give this to you as I'm reading it from the Hebrew text, not as it's being interpreted or biased through the translation teams from which we read our Bibles. This is, again, coming from what I am reading in the Hebrew text. Behold, the man has become like one from us, that is, one who has gone away and linked or committed himself to another, and in doing so has committed treason and has made a covenant with death and not with life, to experientially know good but evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life, that is, eternal life, and eat and live forever. Man was thrown out of the Garden of Eden, but Yeshua came to restore that broken relationship referenced in Genesis 3.22 by setting in motion his death on that Roman tree of execution. Yeshua had to fulfill all of this in precise detail during the Passover week, and also he had to fulfill it on the wrong Passover date according to the Judean calendar. Yeah, you heard me right. He had to fulfill it on the wrong Passover date by permitting himself to be crucified on the Pharisaic 14th day of the first Hebrew month, that is, Aviv 14, according to the Judean lunar calendar paradigm, Yeshua fundamentally cut off the evil flow of power and influence from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil. He had to die on the wrong day. Yes, you heard me correctly, because that wrong day represents everything evil in the world 
as coming from or derived from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, which can only bring destruction and produce death and not life. Therefore, it could be said that Yeshua, our Passover lamb, died for the sins of the world, because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, that is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so it is written for us this way in 1 John 2, 16 and 17, where the closing statement says, The world is passing away, and the lust of her, but he who does the will of Elohim, or God, lives forever. Because his suffering and death happened on the 14th of the first Chodesh, based on the corrupted Judean calendar, it was, in biblical reality, a suffering and death that happened actually in reality on the 16th of the first Chodesh. And in that is fulfilled a command from Jehovah to the Zadokite priests in King Hezekiah's day, which is all according to Second Chronicles 29, verses 15 through 17. And they, referring to the priestly sons of the house of Tzadok, they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of Jehovah. To what? To spiritually cleanse the house of Jehovah. Then the priests went toward the face of the house of Jehovah. Yes, that's what it says from the Hebrew text. To purify and brought out all of the rubbish or trash, referring to idolatrous rubbish and trash that they found in the house or the temple of Jehovah. And they brought it out to the court of the house of Jehovah. And the Levites took out and carried that to the brook Kidron. Now they began to sanctify on the first of the first Chodesh or first month, that is, on New Year's Day. And on the eighth day of the Chodesh, they came to the vestibule or to the court of Jehovah. So they sanctified the house of Jehovah in eight days. And when did that come to a completion? It tells us here in the text. On the 16th day of the first Chodesh or the first month, it says in the text, they finished. So I believe this is what is driving us to an understanding of what Yeshua said in John 19.30 as he was just preparing to die. He said, quote, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his ruach or his spirit. So with these words, Yeshua cleansed the sin-corrupted and dead human soul that was given to each of us when we were born into this world. As it says in the words of David from Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Yes, that is true. In sin did my mother conceive me, because we are a product of an inheritance that we received from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil in Genesis chapter 3. That is our dead human soul that we came into the world with. And what did he do? He escorted that corrupted human soul that we received upon our birth into this world 
It's often called the flesh in the New Covenant or New Testament. And he took that corrupted human soul and he escorted it into the fires of the second death from Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. But on the third day, Yeshua was raised up from out of those fires of the second death and was presented alive on the third day as a new Adam or a new man. And this fulfills the word of Yeshua and the word given to us through Psalm 127, verse 1, and also John 2, 18 through 19. First, John 2, 18 through 19. So the Judeans answered and said to him, What sign do you show us? since you do these things? Yeshua answered and said to them, Destroy this house, and in three days I will raise him up, which is linked to Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Now take a look at Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless Jehovah builds the house... They labor in vain who build him. In other words, being a self-proclaimed Sadok or building your own religion on your own terms, if you're doing that, you're building your own house and you're laboring in vain. According to the Sadok calendar, Yeshua died an insufferable, gruesome, and dreadful physical and spiritual death, as or like an innocent Passover lamb. And it all happened on the biblical 16th of the first month, according to the word of Jehovah given to the Zadokite priests found written about in Second Chronicles, 29.15-17. In doing so, Yeshua destroyed the powers of death embedded into the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, in Hebrew, the Etzadato Virah, which is the tree that produced all of the unsound doctrines of the Judean Pharisees and Sadducees and turned them into usurpers and illegitimate religious leaders in Yeshua's day. This is why Yeshua taught his disciples, saying to them in Matthew 16, verse 6, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So it is that Yeshua died for the sins of the world, inherited by each of us from the unsound doctrines of the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, which is also, I believe, a product of our corrupted DNA, that which destroyed our human soul on birth into this world. But the good news is that Yeshua was raised a new man for each of us on the third day when he emerged and returned from death and corruption in the second death as a pure and spotless lamb, again, coming out of the fires of the second death. Thus, for those who believe this by faith, as it is written into the eternal tablets of heaven, our names are written into the book of life, explaining the words that Shaul or Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 53-57. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, 
Then it shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. That is, the law of sin and death coming from the Etzadat Tovirah, or the tree of the knowledge of good but evil. But Paul goes on to say, Thanks be to Elohim, or God, who gives us the victory through our Master Yeshua, the Messiah. This is the importance of the resurrection, the last day great resurrection. Without it, this whole redemption process started by Yeshua cannot be completed or finished. We're waiting for the last day great resurrection, and that is coming. Well, I sincerely hope that this lengthy 30-part series has helped you to understand a bit more about Yeshua, at least as I have come to understand, through the Zadokite priesthood and the Melchizedek paradigm, and what it all means for us as we wait on Yehovah, again, for that last great day resurrection. Thanks for listening today. Shalom. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.